Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Without a doubt, Western civilization has undergone a significant transformation over the past 60 years. Uh, come on in, folks. Uh, is there a question here? Is he making more? Yes, there are more copies being made. Okay, thank you. So. Thank you. <clears throat> Things once considered shameful and sinful, um, cohabitation before marriage, um, homosexuality, pornography, are now openly celebrated. We even have parades with thousands of people celebrating their sin. Uh, there have been real substantive changes in our culture's definition of right and wrong. We are now facing in Christianity and in the churches an epidemic of sexual immorality. And the church, instead of holding up the standard, seems to be widening its tolerances to embrace anybody and everybody who wants forgiveness, restitution, restoration, and placement back into positions of leadership. Well, we have to be very plain and ask the question, how many of us can name a famous leader who has fallen into sexual sin? Or how many of us have been in a church where someone has fallen into sexual sin? And sadly, how many of us have been in a church where someone has fallen into sexual sin and nothing was done about it? Unfortunately, the instances have been far too many. We know those famous Christians who have in epidemic numbers been falling into a variety of sins, divorces or scandals of one type or another, and churches have become more tolerant of it. Uh, <clears throat> someone who did not have an impeccable record as a Christian can now be easily welcomed back into a position of leadership. Um, simply if they pay the tariff, they go to counseling, and that's it. Um, now in the name of grace, you know, there, there is room for grace. In the name of love, we can overlook some things that would, dis that would you know, be shameful and sinful, but there are, plainly, in the Word of God, those items which are identified as disqualifiers. Society around us has put pressure on us. We live in a debased society. We live in a society that panders to the lusts of its populists. Immorality is totally acceptable, but totally unacceptable with God. And it must be unacceptable to his people as well. Society is jaded about purity. You find people making fun of people who might wear a purity ring. Or even the phrase, you know, love waits. We tolerate people who are proclaimers in one way or another as the Gospels, whose lives could make a black mark on a piece of coal. Tolerance has become the norm. Constant overexposure to sexual sin has dulled all of our sensibilities to it. There is a quote on your papers there from the Boundless Director of Focus at Focus on the Family saying that if you look at the dating landscape in the church of today, it looks very similar to that of the world. There's not a lot of distinction in the way people date or in the attitude toward dating and marriage. While sex may be the determining factor for some Christians, we're even seeing that line blurred. In every other respect, we're seeing the same kind of attitudes and practices where the church has adopted the patterns of the larger secular culture so that we see cohabitation increasing and becoming more widely accepted as an alternative to marriage with the result that marriage is being delayed or disregarded altogether. We can increasingly encounter unmarried couples living together. 
And many cohabiting couples are not actively part of a church community. They might attend church services, but have minimal involvement outside of that. Now, they fall into three categories. There are willful couples who care little about what the pastors, what the Bible, what the church says, because they have a low view of scripture and authority. And by the way, I hope that, you know, in our study, we see that these items really flow one into another. The lack of respect for authority, God's word, the church, and how the life is lived out. Just like we accept the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God, and it affects our lives. There are also <clears throat> stuck couples who know that it's wrong and sinful, but they feel trapped and ashamed. They want to make changes, but they need the support and encouragement of good friends and God's people and a plan to act upon. And then there are totally unaware couples. In many ways, we are a post-Christian society. They've never heard of the biblical view, and once they do, they may want to change. They may want to stick with their guns. They may be soft to Scripture, or they may want to and desire to be led. They're quite often either not yet Christians or very young in the faith. And so we need to work with sensitivity and wisdom in that. Now, there have been some interesting surveys. And the numbers are a little surprising. In a Christian Mingle survey, 61% of Christian singles interviewed are willing to have casual sex. Only 11% said that they save sex exclusively for marriage. 11%. This is on Christian Mingle. 23% said that they would have to be in love to have intimate relations. And 5% that they would wait until they were engaged. Another survey from Relevant, the magazine, stated this, 80% of young unmarried Christians have had sex. And 66% have been sexually active in the last year. We are living in an age of moral compromise. There's an old Russian parable about a man who went hunting one day. And he came out of the woods into a clearing. He found himself face to face with a big old bear. The hunter raised his rifle to shoot, but the bear said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't shoot. What is it you want? The hunter said, I need a fur coat. The bear said, that's reasonable. I want a full stomach. I think we can work something out. Let's sit down and talk about it. So they sat down on a log, and after a while, the bear walked away, alone. He had his full stomach, and the hunter had his fur coat. Isn't that picture perfect for this? Uh, for those who are listening, I'm showing a picture of a man in a red flannel plaid shirt whose head is encompassed by a grizzly bear. Uh, <clears throat> apparently, these, these, the bear and his human are friends, but... It's a good illustration. So here's a question for you. What biblical characters fell into sexual sin? What examples of moral compromise can you name from the pages of Holy Writ? Who? David. Who else? Solomon. Abraham. Isaac. Jacob. Onan. Tamar. Judah. Now this is not an isolated problem. This is not just a problem today, but it is a timeless issue. Let's go to Revelations chapter 2. Revelations chapter 2. Here's another example of a 
group of people who had engaged in moral compromise based on the pressures of the world and the culture around them. Now we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 28. Uh, in terms of saving time today, I'm going to not read that, but I would encourage you to look at this passage as I talk. Now the letter to the church in Thyatira is the longest of the seven letters written to the church in the least important of the seven cities. It was situated on a trade route that ran through the Hermes Valley. It was a manufacturing center, an industrial town known for its woolen industry and dyeing industry. Made in Thyatira was a mark of quality throughout all of Asia Minor. Matter of fact, you remember Lydia? And her reference, you know, she was Paul's first convert to Christ in Europe, was from Thyatira. She may have very well helped establish a church there. There's no threat of persecution in Thyatira. It was not a center of emperor worship like Pergamon, nor was it known for its pagan temples like Ephesus or Smyrna. The authorities weren't going to arrest you if you claimed to be a Christian. And if you visited the church in Thyatira, you would be impressed. Look at verse 19 there. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. This was a happening church. They had lots of programs. They were doing things. They were doing deeds of benevolence. They were doing good things. It's, an, it's active. It's growing. It's on a roll. There are people who love each other and serve each other. It's a happening place to be. You'd want to connect with this community of believers. But there's a problem that's growing like a cancer underneath the surface of the church. You wouldn't notice it at first. In fact, you might notice, not notice it for a while. But Christ, who is described as the Son of God with eyes like blazing fire... He sees it, and now it's time to expose it to the church and to us as well. Tolerance is a key word in our culture today. It's one of the highest virtues in America. Tolerance is what allows us to live in freedom with those who might disagree. And for the most part, tolerance is a wonderful thing, but not always. The church in Thyatira was tolerant to a fault. They were tolerating something very evil that was threatening to the church. Apparently, there was a woman who has called herself a prophet and was teaching believers that it was okay to engage in sexual immorality. Jesus calls her Jezebel. And of course, when you hear that name, you immediately think of the Old Testament woman Jezebel. Time had run out on this woman. She was about to suffer the consequences of her compromise. She was about to be eaten by the bear and put on the fur coat. All those who embraced her teaching we're not far behind. It was going to get ugly. But what was she teaching? Well, business in Tyra was promulgated as a commercial city. And history tells us that in order to be uh, profitable in business, you had to be a member of the trade guild, the local chamber of commerce. These guilds were like unions today. Every trade had a guild and they would work together and socialize with those in their industry. The economy revolved around these guilds. It was difficult to make a living in Thyatira if you were not a part of that guild or that chamber of commerce. Does that make sense? And guess what went on at these chamber meetings? All sorts of immorality. All right? So they had the sacrifices to the gods and then the accompanying rituals which included sexual promiscuity. 
It was a wild party where members were expected to participate in all kinds of sexual immorality. And that was a real problem for those who were serious about their faith in Christ. Can I be a member of this guild? Should I go to the meetings? Can I eat the food offered to idols? Is that reminiscent of the problem with the Corinthians, right? Many of the early church thought that no Christian should belong to a guild because of the immorality. But Jezebel, who may have indeed been a leader, a prophet in this church, was saying, sure you can. There's nothing wrong with, with such a choice. After all, you have to make a living. You have to hold a job. And in order to make a job here in Tyatira, you have to compromise a little bit, go to a guild, participate, so that everybody will know that you know, you're part of the business. Can I really believe that Jesus will take care of me if I obey him? Now, not everybody was caving into a teaching. Rewards are promised here in this text to those who refuse to compromise their lifestyle and do God's will to the end. To the overcomers, Jesus offers the right to rule with him in his kingdom. He also promises, and look at the text here, <clears throat> Verse 28, I will give to them the morning star. He is going to give to them himself. You obey me, I will care for you, I will give you myself. The greatest riches that anyone could ever hope for. We come to today and we have to ask the question, does sexual purity still matter in the church today? Why? Why is sexual purity important in the church today? Say it again. It's God's standard which must be shown and upheld. What else? The body is a temple. The body of Christ, his people, is a temple and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Good. What else? I'm sorry? Rick. The representation of Christ and his people before the throne of God and before the world is critically important. The nib just came off the speaker or the uh, microphone. <clears throat> so let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we are told that we need to be concerned with our sexual purity. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, just as you have received from us instruction on how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So we have some incentives in this passage. The first is the incentive of pleasing God. We want to delight Him. We make it as our goal to be what? To be pleasing to Him, right? That's our goal. Number two, we want to follow the incentive of doing the will of God. This is the will of God. 
You don't need to read tea leaves. You don't need to split open an animal and read its entrails. The scriptures are very plain on how you know the will of God. This is the will of God. Even your sanctification, your holiness, your progressive walk toward the image, person, character, maturity of Christ. There's the incentive of honor. The incentive of honor. Controlling our body in purity is a matter of honor. Either being honored by the community or showing your honor to your wife, other women, or to your husband and other men. Verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Sexual purity is the honorable thing to do. Number four, the incentive of Christian love that seeks the good of others, not to use others. As a non-Christian, my goal was to use others. And it was not to build them up to seek their good. It was to use them. Sexual purity is a loving way to treat others. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. That no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. That's the key point there. When we win sexually, we're not seeking when we sin sexually, excuse me, we are not seeking the highest good of others, neither the woman or the man we sin with, nor the person we fantasize about, nor the person in the pornography, nor the spouse or parent of any of these. It is not Christian love that moves us in any of these. It is simply selfish desire. We are called to be deeply moved by love for others, not to use them. Number five. The incentive of God's vengeance. The incentive of God's vengeance. Verse 6, the end of that verse. The Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. If we turn from the Lord as our treasure and our all-satisfying pleasure and make a master out of sex, sooner or later we will meet the wrath of God. So, now we return to our study in the book, The Letters to the Corinthians. We are very much like the church at Corinth, which was victimized by pagan immorality, and the church, I believe, has to fight against it, just as the Corinthian church needed to fight against it in its own time. Now, you know, if... if if we started talking, if we started asking the question, what verses do you know from the Old Testament that talk about sexual purity? You can immediately think of a bunch, right? Think about the sexual... Uh, first off, you know, the, the Garden of Eden. You know, the Garden of Eden, which, you know, God gave us this institution, the basis of all society, a man and a woman, you know, committed to each other in a lifelong covenant, and from there, it became corrupt immediately. You had the problem of polygamy very soon in the early chapters of Genesis. You know, you had the problems of incest. You had the problems of adultery, murder about adultery. You had you know, homosexuality. You know, God wiped out a huge population of the earth swept it clean because of the violence 
and because of the immorality. When you and I load up our gas tanks in our cars today, it's a reminder of God's universal, worldwide judgment. The aliphatics, the fats, the lipids from the plants, the animals, the people, under a pyrolytic process, is what we use today as our gasoline. It's a reminder that God destroyed huge numbers of people, plants, animals, because of the sin and corruption of man, this immorality. We have to deal with sin on a corporate level as a church. 1 Corinthians 5. Turn there, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. So, from the text and from your experience, what do we do about this as a church when we know about it? As a group of God's people, as a local manifestation of the body of Christ, what do we do about it when someone is caught in a sexual sin and it becomes known? What do we do? You have to talk up loud. I'm a deaf old man. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Good. What else? I'm sorry? Yeah. Excellent. What else? Verse 2 says that they were not mourning. Verse 2, there needs to be some mourning. This is a grievous thing. This needs to be taken seriously. Yes, Rick? There needs to be some come alongside, some Matthew 18, some Galatians 6. Good. All right? There are some things here that God, in his wisdom, number one, number one, we must recognize sin. We must recognize it. We must acknowledge it. Verse 1 and 2 deal with the recognition. Paul writes, it is generally reported. In other words, it's just common knowledge. It's porneia, sexual sin prior to marriage. It's among you, and it's a sexual sin. The church, if you can get this, is shocking the world. This sin is not even committed among the Gentiles. Look at this quote from Matthew Henry here. The heinous sins of professed Christians are quickly noted and noised abroad. Right? The church is going to let people know about this. It's commonly reported, present tense. Everybody knows about it, that you have a kind of sexual deviation that the pagans don't even practice, namely incest. The father's wife, whether it's Stepmother, the, the, it doesn't matter exactly what the details are. We don't know exactly, but it's known that this is something that's shocking. Whatever the marital status, it was an incestuous relationship. Number two, we cannot be arrogant. <clears throat> and Paul is stunned. You have this problem, and verse two, you have become arrogant and not mourned instead. There was a continual arrogant pride in the midst of gross sexual vice. Do you remember the story that I told last week about this young woman who's involved in the Bachelorette? Yes. She was doing just that. She was bragging about her sexual escapades and she wasn't accountable. There's an arrogance, a puffed up, a pride that blinds people unwilling to admit and take responsibility for their sin. Lastly, we need to, well, no, not lastly, number three, we need to remove the person. And this picture of a uh, life preserver is an accurate one. That's the purpose of removal. That's the purpose of church discipline. You know, Paul talks to Timothy 
in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander were delivered over to Satan. Well, Paul says, I'm not with you physically, but I'm with you in spirit. And you should put this person out. They should be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wow. What does that mean? All the other steps, yes, exactly. Great question. Yep. Yep, if there's no repentance, if somebody goes privately, like Rick said, and admonishes the brother, they don't listen. Then someone comes along as a witness and says, hey, brother, we're very concerned about this. You need to stop doing this. Is this correct? Is this what you're doing? And then the person says, this is what I'm doing. I'm not stopping. Then they tell it to the church. And if they will not listen to the church, then... They are put out. So good, great question. Thank you. They need to be removed. But what does this destruction of the flesh mean? Mr. Cannon, you... Excellent question. Excellent question. And the question that Mr. Caden is asking is this. In a consumer-driven church environment, which is where we are today in America, it is very easy for people just to leave, to leave, to vote with their feet, and they're gone. And they go to a church down the street, and what happens? What is the responsibility? You know, one of the practices we do is we ask on the uh, form that we have people fill out for application for membership, what churches have you been to? You know, how did you leave? And we will make a call. Now, in today's litigious society, or litigious, however you want to pronounce that, it's very easy for people to say, boom, I'm going to sue this church because they slandered me. And such cases have cost money and time, uh, but have been lost because this is the church's responsibility, especially if it's in a covenant, if it's in the church constitution. So there is that responsibility that shepherds have and, you know, we can easily tell people, brother, sister, you need to deal with this. We encourage you to go back and deal with this in a biblical, God-honoring way. It's a great question. You know, the destruction of the flesh. Some people would say that Paul is delivering this person over to be killed. Some would say that it's simply the destruction of the sinful drive and this passion to not be repentant. You know, many scholars, many Bible scholars would say that, yes, this is being delivered over to the world, being set apart from the comfort, the encouragement, the fellowship, the communion, the community of the local church, with the hopes that, and this is always the case, with the hopes that this person comes to their senses, recognizes their sin, repents, and is restored to fellowship. It could be that there is a disease here or, or their physical malady that hopefully God will use for that purpose. Yes, Dan? The fact that that verse says, so that yeah. his spirit will be saved. So that his spirit will be saved. That indicates the idea is repentance. Yeah, exactly. It's built in. 
you know, we need to remove the person. And next, we also need to remove the influence. Paul goes on here, talking to the Corinthians, talking about eliminating the, um, the influence, the leavening, which can permeate the whole church. And unfortunately, some of us have seen that. We have seen where there is some sin that is allowed to just fester, and it creates all sorts of problems in a local fellowship. You know, no longer is the practice of church discipline one of the visible features of the contemporary church. How did the church do this? What happened? Well, it happened both internal and external. The abandonment of church discipline is linked to American Christianity's creeping accommodation to American culture. As the 20th century began, this accommodation was increasingly evident with the church which acquiesced to a culture of moral individualism. Throughout the 19th century, which was not a golden era for American evangelicals, this century did see the consolidation of evangelical theology and church patterns. There was church discipline, and congregational records indicated that. No sphere of life was outside of the realm of accountability. By the turn of the century, however, church discipline was already on the decline. In the wake of the Enlightenment, criticism of the Bible and the doctrines of evangelical authority being undermined, even the most conservative denominations began to show evidence of decreased attention to theological orthodoxy. Many congregations have thus forfeited the responsibility to confront even the most public sins of their members and leaders. Consumed with pragmatic methods of church growth and congregational engineering, most churches leave moral matters to the domain of the individual conscience. Confession of sin is now passé, and naturalistic reductionism has reduced us to individual well, what's the word I'm looking for? Individual hedonism, really, where we pursue our own pleasures. The notion of shame has been discarded by a generation for which shame is extremely necessary. And it represents, represents shame represents a hindrance to personal fulfillment. Even secular observers know this. The Christian church has aided and abetted this moral transformation. So, we've capitulated to the divorce culture. We've capitulated to the sexual license. We've fallen into that ditch, and we cover it with a meaningless reference to grace or forgiveness or not judging. Church members are so committed to their own version of rights talk that some congregations accept any behavior or lifestyle as acceptable. But Peter instructed the church that we are to be aliens and strangers. We are to abstain from sinful desires which war against our soul. We are to thus remove the influence of the church, of the, uh, of the people who are unrepentant. And that's the key word there, unrepentant. Because there is restoration, there is hope, there is the glorious power of the gospel to restore people to a, perp a sense of usefulness. And I can only hope that some of us have seen that very thing happen in our churches, where someone who claimed to be 
under the name of Christ, claimed to be a part of the community, had a public issue that they repented of and they were restored to fellowship. It's a glorious thing. It shows the power of the gospel. It shows the commitment to Christ and a fear of God. Well, in addition to dealing with sin on a corporate level, we also need to deal with sin on a personal level. And to that end, you know, we go to 1 Corinthians 6. So turn there if you would. Go over one page. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. Paul begins by saying, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for the food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. The slogan, food is for the body and body for the food, is emblematic of an attitude that became a philosophical justification for immorality. There's certainly nothing wrong with eating. It's a biologic need. In a sense, it's a euphemism for sex. It implies sex is for the body and the body for sex, just like eating, drinking, and sexual activity is nothing more than sheer biology. It's just a physiological activity. What are you so uptight for? You need to leave your puritanical opinions behind. This is, after all, the 21st century. We're animals. The body was made for sex. Men are men, women are women. The obvious intention of that is to bring them together in a physical, biological act. Why are we so concerned about it? Lighten up. And it's precisely that justification that we face today, that man is nothing more than a biological animal with certain added mental capacities, confessedly of various degrees. Anything is right, anything is optional. You know, and that, that erosion of our society. In 1969, 66% believed premarital and extramarital sex were wrong. In 1985, 66% believed premarital and extramarital sex was right. 16 years to go from 66% believing it was wrong to 66% believing it was right. Now, we have to be honest. When people talk about, when people do sexual surveys, you have to question about whether or not they're being honest. But if that's any indication, that's a true indicator, a true litmus test of where our society is and the society that we as a church are embedded in. The church necessarily is bound to have a fight on their hands because of that very shift. Now, the Corinthians were a vile society. The verb in the Greek, to Corinthianize, mean basically have relations with a prostitute. The whole city was associated with that moral issue. And when people came to Christ, they brought some of that baggage with them, as we've discussed, right? Certainly they were cleansed by the work of the Savior in their life, but there was an awful lot of leaven from that past society which still clung and permeated their new life, and therein lies the problem. So Paul begins in verse 13 to deal with the perversion of sexual immorality on a personal level. So he says several things. One, sexual relationships outside the man-woman marriage is a bond should uh, be let's see here. There we go. Sexual relations outside the man-woman marriage bond is a perversion of God's intention. First of all, because the body was not made for sex, the body was made for whom? 
Who was the body made for? It was for the Lord, right? And it was the Lord. Your body is not your own to do with what you will. Your body belongs to the Lord. Paul goes on and says, God will destroy both food and stomachs. The point is the biological process will stop. Yes, eating is a normal biological function. Food and stomachs do go together, but God will destroy both food and stomachs. In other words, in the future, there will be a time when we have a glorified body, not dependent on food, not dependent upon a biological digestive system. It's temporary. It's transient. God will do away with that, but the body is not for Pornea, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body, as proven in verse four by the 14 by the resurrection. Next. Food and stomachs are temporary. Bodies of believers in a glorified state are eternal. So what you do with your body is a very grave concern because your body is not for sexual sin, but for the Lord. If you want a slogan, then let your slogan be, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What I do with my body is very important because my body belongs to Him. Romans 12.1 says what? Present your bodies, physical bodies, right? This is not some weird understanding that whatever we do in the body is meaningless, but whatever we do spiritually is beneficial, all right? We're fused bipartite individual. We are body and spirit joined together. That's how God designed us, all right? And there's nothing that says that what we do in the body is meaningless. In this life, it can be extremely meaningful. Yeah? <clears throat> Think of the rise of, you know, we talked about this when we went through the contramundum classes, the whole rise of sexual immorality, and even as it, ex as it uh, exponentially increased through the, uh, through the discovery of penicillins and uh, antibiotics and how that just helped people to become more sexually active because they felt, oh, there's no consequence, that consequence is taken away. The AIDS epidemic, again, gave us a new you know, brief awareness that, yes, there is an impact to what I do with my body. God has a specific design for our body. That's number four. God has a specific design. As he raised up the Lord, in verse 14, he will also raise up us up by his own power. In 1 Corinthians 15, will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. Death will be swallowed up by life. We will enter into a new and glorious existence. We will have an exchange of this vile body. And everybody over the age of 30 said... Amen. Right? Our body also, number five, belongs to the Godhead. Our body belongs to the Godhead. One with Christ. Not only to God, but one with Christ. The whole Trinity is going to be involved with this, as number eight will show us. We are to number six, flee immorality. Because of such seriousness, note what he says in verse 18, flee pornea, flee immorality. It's a present imperative. Make it a habit of continue to run. Who did that in the Old Testament? Joseph, right? He's our example, right? You know, for illustrations, and John MacArthur is very good on this. Um, That's where I got this initial concept. For illustrations, we really don't need to go outside of the Bible to talk about man's problems because they're all in there. <laughs> you know, they're in there. Seven, it's deeply personal. Where number six, flee immorality. Number seven, it is deeply personal. In verse 18, he further says to show us the seriousness of the sin. Every sin that a man does is outside of his body, 
But he that commits fornication sins against his own body. Every other sin approaches from the outside, but this one rises from within. Other sins have external stimuli. This one is internal. These sexual, this lack of control over sexual drives and desires can be more destructive than drugs, alcohol, and patterns of other crimes. And many times they go together. You know, <clears throat> Paul writing this may have in mind a venereal disease. Some people think that a venereal disease is a reaction of God's wrath against sin. And we can talk about Romans, you know, the early chapters of Romans there, because that's an interesting discussion. Number eight. Number eight, the Spirit of God. The third issue takes us away from God to Christ, to the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, what, again incredibly, marks his words. He can't believe that. They wouldn't know that their body is also the shrine, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit who is in us, whom we have as a gift from God. That way we know we're not our own. Ephesians 5.23, let this sin not be named among you. Hebrews 13.4, Marriage, let it be honorable. The bed, undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So, how do we deal with this on a personal issue? Knowing God is the key. First Thessalonians 4 then uh, commands us, commends us to not only abstain from sexual immorality, but know how to avoid these things. <clears throat> Knowing God is the path to sexual purity. Now, you can say easily, good grief, there are world-class theologians who are in bondage to lust and who leave their wives. So what good is all this knowledge about God? Well, indeed there are such people. But there are two things that we can say. One, either they don't know God or all they know is facts about God. And how many of you, before you were Christians, understood certain doctrines? You, know? you understood that Jesus was, you know, the Son of God incarnate. You understand that he was born of a virgin. You could have said, yeah, the Bible's the word of God. But your lifestyle was far from it, right? So, it's a path to sexual purity. <clears throat> Verse 1 there in 1 Thessalonians tells us that we need to be mindful of the patience of God. He is so patient with us, causing us to grow and to cling to him. We need to also, in the previous chapter, we need to know the power of God. We defeat the deceitful pleasures of lusts with the superior pleasures of knowing him. You know, that's, that's our desire. And we need to know the preciousness of God and the pleasures he is to us. Now, <clears throat> as we wrap up, I want to add some things that are not in your notes. This idea of knowing God, knowing his patience, knowing the power, knowing his preciousness. I also want to continue on this idea of knowing. Wives, know your husbands. Know that your husbands will have a drive, a libido, that's different than yours. Understand that. Respond to that appropriately, out of love and concern. 
Husbands, know your wives. Know that this woman is different than you. Love and respect her. Remember that your act of physical intimacy does not begin when you start grunting like an animal. It happens in the kitchen. It happens as you walk past each other in the hall. That you need to know that your wife is different. You need to understand your wife. And husbands and wives need to know, as the apostle warns us, that this area of our lives is critically important and can help us avoid temptation. So we need to know each other. We need to love and respect each other and serve each other in a way that honors God. And to the single folks out there, young or old, you may or may not have a very strong libido. But we need to remember that we are accountable for what we do, for what we watch, for how we care for our own bodies. And we need to trust God that he will indeed be our greatest pleasure, our greatest satisfaction. If you wrestle with those things, I do encourage you, for your sake, for the honor and glory of God, for the benefit of this fellowship, for the benefit of his reputation, talk to someone that you love and respect. Work this, says, this out you know, to God's honor and glory. Don't let this be a gnawing, undermining of the foundation of your faith your ability to walk in a way that honors God. Questions, comments, exhortations, encouragements. Yes, sister. sister is saying that um, you know it's 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 painful to watch our society slip into uh, further and further degradation and debasing of themselves uh, and the image of God um, I'm going to close with this there's hope there is hope and there is deliverance when Heather Lindsay moved to New York City in 2004 at the age of 22 the Michigan native uh, attended church regularly, considered herself a Christian. She grew up in a church and said it was rarely emphasized to read the Bible or one's relationship with God. As an adolescent, 
the only advice her mother gave her concerning sexuality was to use birth control when she became sexually active. In college, Lindsay gave her heart to Christ, but there for the first time, she was convinced that premarital sex was wrong. However, in spite of that realization, she moved to New York and she did not abide by that sexual ethic. She entered and exited relationships freely, often sleeping with the men she was dating. Even though she knew she was wrong, she continued to have sex outside of marriage. When asked why, she said, why? Because when you're single, you don't want to be lonely. I was the girl who broke up with one boyfriend and had another one on speed dial. That afternoon, I'd already be going out with someone else. I kept the boyfriend because I liked the attention, she continued. For this young woman, her behavior was not simply a result of her conforming to the sexual values of her non-Christian friends. Instead, she had friends from church with similar sexual ethics and even dated and became sexually involved with a man who was serving at the same church that she was. She said, we all went to church. We were hypocrites. We said we loved the Lord, but we ignored the scriptures that said fornication is a sin. Eventually, she cut off all the people who were involved in that lifestyle. Several years ago, she got married and moved to Atlanta. Uh, she's 31 years old, and she's the founder and CEO of Pinky Promise, an organization that encourages single and married women to rise above cultural pressures and to stay determined to live for Christ regardless of their circumstances, regardless of our past, regardless of past sins. God's power, his gospel, is indeed awesome, powerful, effective, and can bring us to a point of usefulness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hope that we have in your Son. I thank you for the fact that you are going to build your church, that you will purify your bride and present her to yourself blameless. We look forward to that day. Lord, during this time, we ask that you would cause us to be vigilant, that we would be mindful, that we would love you above all else, that we would remember that we belong to you. We thank you for this time in your son's precious name. Amen.